Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas. And we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to John Cassidy. John is co-founder and CEO at Cambridge Cancer Genomics, a precision AI startup transforming the ability of oncologists to provide effective, personalized cancer treatment for everyone. John holds a PhD in functional genomics from the University of Cambridge and has previous experience at Cancer Research UK and Medimmune. We're really excited to talk to John about his experiences at CCG, as well as the role of personalised genomics in cancer treatment. Hi, John. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show with us. No problem at all. Pleasure to be here. Maybe to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, sure thing. Yeah, so uh, I've been in Cambridge for probably about seven years now. Um, before that, I was in Glasgow, uh, where my background is as a pharmacologist. So I came down to Cambridge. I worked in Medimmune for a bit, now AstraZeneca, then did my PhD at the Cancer Research UK Institute down in Addenbrooke's. And out of the back of the PhD, uh, founded this company, Cambridge Cancer Genomics. So what exactly is Cambridge Cancer Genomics? Well, if we go to the kind of corporate mission statement, we um, exist to ensure that each patient gets the right drug at the right time to beat their cancer. And so picking apart that a little bit, um, so firstly, the first the right drug. So we care about developing uh, biomarkers, which enable uh, clinicians and, and oncologists to actively stratify patients and get them on the right drug the right time, so we care about tumor evolution, how tumors change over time, and how they become resistant, and how we can find the most appropriate treatment window for each individual patient. And lastly, every patient. So we don't care about building something for the richest 1%. We want to make a open precision oncology platform, which is available to all cancer patients worldwide. That's so cool. How did the idea for CCG came about? Um, so... I think it originally came around um, when I was doing my PhD and a postdoc in the lab who had done his, Harry, who had done his PhD in, in Oxford. So I was working on mechanisms of breast cancer resistance, breast cancer drug resistance. He had a background in kind of looking at um, dynamic RNA signatures, so signatures of RNA and how they change over time. And we got together with a guy, Namesh, who was working on new drugs for triple negative breast cancer. And... When you take somebody who you know cares about dynamic biomarkers or things that change over time, somebody who cares about drug resistance and somebody building a drug, you come up with this idea that, okay, maybe it'd be a good idea if we figured out a way of properly stratifying patients. And that's kind of where the, the first spark of the idea, I guess, came from. Mm -hmm. And what's been the path of CCG since that idea came about to where you are today? Sure. Well, so the first idea... I mean, was essentially dynamic biomarkers. So biomarkers that change are more important than if, whether a biomarker is simply present or absent as a kind of binary indicator. Mm. And with that idea, we kind of went around the typical 
Cambridge, um, I guess, startup circuit that people might be aware of. Uh, um, so the the Q startup awards and um, we did some stuff in Oxford and stuff some stuff in London, lots of different competitions and whatnot for about a year. And whilst we were doing all this, we obviously we didn't have any money, but we were uh, analyzing a lot of publicly available data and trying to kind of prove out this concept as well as talking to a lot of cancer clinics. And then after about a year, a year and a half or so, we uh, went through a program in San Francisco called Y Combinator, which is an accelerator to help companies uh, kind of get funded and, and get started. It's the accelerator that Airbnb and Dropbox and a few other big companies went through. Um, so we went over to California um, with about two days notice. So we just kind of packed up from Cambridge and left and, and you know, hope for the best. Um, spent three months out there coming up with a decent business model. Um, and then at the end of that process, we uh, raised some seed money, came back to Cambridge, hired some engineers and started working on the problem kind of full time. And what, what made you confident as a Cambridge PhD student that you could tackle this entrepreneurial journey and embark on this CEO role? Um, I don't think I ever was really that confident. I think that um, I just kind of thought I'd give it a go. <laughs> and what have you learned since as, as a CEO? Ooh, I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned that there's basically a whole other world, um, which is non-science, which is very important to try and understand. Um, everything from accounting to hiring to onboarding people and learning about profit and loss and users and user interfaces, whole bunch of stuff I've learned. Um, but I guess the, the same principles that I applied all throughout my career, so during the PhD, during time of MediMean, whatever, was that you need to get people who are smarter than you in the same room as you. You can't be the smartest person in the room. And I think we've just used that philosophy at CCG to just hire people that are way better than me. And I think that's really been the key so far to our success, just hiring smart people. Mm. And I think we'll come back to some of the lessons you have learned as, as CEO a little bit later. But but maybe let's first talk a little bit more about um, the company and, and the path it has had and maybe the, the challenges you want to tackle. Sure, sure. Um, so so as I said, CCG is really concerned with developing these complex biomarkers. Um, so I guess when we first started, you know, we had this idea of dynamic biomarkers of response. And one of the first things we realized was that we, in order to kind of answer this question and, and develop these biomarkers, especially using machine learning, we would need a bunch of data, so a bunch of genomics data. And we started thinking about how we could do that. And we realized that a lot of the... Um, genomics data that was publicly available was either siloed or it was available, but only the process data was available. And it turns out that the way that you process genomic data, so the way that you go from raw DNA through to variants or mutations, is a really lossy process. So you go from like an image that comes off the Illumina machine through to... Um, through to aligned reads and then through to variants. And at each different stage, you throw away a bunch of information, which is you know, the ground truth information as, as far as we can, as close as we can get to. Um, so, so what we did is we, we looked at tools that were available and ways that were available that would allow us to get access to a lot of raw um, DNA data, raw genomic data and clinical mm -hmm. data. Um, 
And it turns out that there's this whole field called that that is concerned with kind of DNA analytics. So a way of taking raw genomic data and going through to clinical trial recommendations or whatever. Um, and a lot of the tools that were available that did this were really pretty crap. So they all had, they were all really not intuitive at all for doctors to use. They all had really bad feature creep where you just had, you know, a million different features and different ways that an oncologist could look at the at the analysis. And really, I mean, you guys know that an oncologist maybe has 20 minutes or something to make a decision um, before, before a patient goes in um, to their consultation. And really, that's not enough time to work out what to do with a piece of software that has 300 tabs in it. You know, they need a, a better analysis. Mm. So what we did is we redesigned this kind of whole thing from the ground up. So we built a new genomic analysis platform, which we call Oncos, which is now um, CE mark, so it's now regulatorily approved. Um, it's a proper bona fide clinical decision support tool, mm. and it is the world's most accurate variant caller and, and genomic analysis software. So we beat Google, we beat Harvard, we beat MIT at this process, um, and it's now regulatorily approved, and we're now onboarding the first customers and, and rolling this software out. And this software allows us to to do two things. Firstly, it's provide real value to oncologists. So people actually, you know, they use it and they like it. Um, and the other thing is that we can, in a very kind of privacy conscious and, um, you know, GDPR compliant way, we can carry out federated machine learning on the data sets which are collected. And we can use these data sets to um, power the discovery of complex biomarkers of response. And actually, very recently, um, we started a collaboration with Genomics England. And using this data that we collected through OnCost and other sources of data, we developed a biomarker of uh, treatment response to some immunotherapy drugs in lung cancers, which are by far the best biomarkers ever developed. So, I mean, compared to standard of care, which would be tumor mutational burden analysis, we capture about 100% more patients. So, so double the patient number can use these immunotherapy drugs, which are life-saving drugs, and overall cohort survival is increased by about 20%. So it's it's kind of a win-win for, for everybody involved. So drug companies sell more drugs, patients survive longer, and payers get more. Uh, they, they don't fund patients on drugs that are not going to work. So really we're at this point where we've made a kind of a lot of proof points and we're ready to roll out on costs and also go into the next stage of validation of our, of our biomarkers. So how do you interface with clinicians? How, how do they get access to all of this amazing work that you do in order to help, from what I understand, make help them make better decisions about what mm -hmm. targeted therapies they can provide in oncology? Mm -hmm. So um, Oncos is a software platform that they can use. Yeah. Um, and I guess a really... I guess a good way of thinking about it is that if you were interested in getting targeted, you know, personalized oncology stuff, you may go and get a foundation medicine report. So this is when you send away a sample, it gets sequenced, and you get a clinical report back. So with Oncos, what essentially a hospital can do is if they just buy an Illumina machine off of the shelf and get our software, they can have the same standard of clinical report. And what's the current... Uh, alternative that's being used in the clinic right now? So there are a couple. So if you're lucky enough to go to somewhere like Addenbrooke's, then you go on to, for example, if you had breast cancer, you may go on to the personalized breast cancer program. Mm -hmm. 
which is uh, whole genome sequencing as standard of care, analyzed by a very competent um, MDT, actually ran by the lab where I did my PhD, um, who will look at the variants in your in your genomic information, and they'll make the best clinical decision based on that information. So they'll say, okay, there's, you know, Jason Carroll's company for FOXA1 uh, ER resistant breast cancer just got more funding. So for example, if they did a clinical trial, if your genomic data came back and said you have a FOXA1 mutation or whatever it is, then you may be eligible for this clinical trial running and you go into that clinical trial. But the difficulty is that Adamrooks is not how most hospitals operate because obviously it's a very academic and a very you know good hospital. So the standard of care in Adambrooks is very different from the standard of care somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so in a different, maybe a community can cancer clinic in the US, for example, you're much more likely to get a foundation medicine or a garden health report, mm -hmm. which is a kind of outsourced version of what we do. One important aspect of what you do is, is data. And th that comes with a lot of responsibility. And how do you ensure that the data you're using is anonymized and who has access to that data, which I believe is probably quite valuable. Sure. Um, so all data that we use in any kind of way at all is anonymized at the clinician level. Mm -hmm. So it's the actual front end of the of the application which anonymizes everything, which means that we don't even store you know names or anything like that. I mean, there's no way we could have access to that. And all the learning that we do is all off the kind of metadata from that analysis. Um, having said that, there there are there are obviously privacy issues that we have to contend with. Um, most notably, I guess, is that a lot of um, a lot of jurisdictions and a lot of countries don't like data from their citizens moving across borders. Mm -hmm. So in the Middle East, for example, you'll find it very difficult to move data to the US. And in Germany, you can't remove data from Germany, which is a challenge because a lot of the back end of Oncos works on AWS, which means that we need a good cloud architecture in that country in order to do the analysis, which is really tricky. Um, but we're actually working through a solution with the Singaporean government right now where we would do some kind of initial um, processes, so aligning, for example, um, before transferring data out of the country and then processing it and then putting it back in the country. So there's lots of different stakeholders that you need to be aware of. And obviously, you know, we're very mindful of that. And yeah, we're not Facebook. Mm. And how much of this do the patients see themselves? So we've talked quite a lot about the clinicians, um, but what do the patients see? Mm. This is, uh, this is something that we've been talking about quite a lot recently, actually. Um, so Oncos is a tool for qualified professionals. Yeah. And giving the same information to a patient is, is not currently in the, the agreement of the way that the software should work. So we're not currently allowed to do it. But I think that the, in future, I think it could be very, very valuable. So we're trying to figure out ways of showing data to patients and, uh, and trying to work out what it is that they want to see and how much data or how much analysis can we give them and, and show them without having to give them too much kind of genetic counseling information as well. Or if we do show them information, working out how we can give them that genetic counseling information alongside it. Um, so this, this is an active thing that we're trying to work on just now, but right now it is primarily a tool for oncologists. Okay. You, you've already mentioned that you're working with different governments, 
and uh, different stakeholder groups like uh, patients and possibly uh, pharma companies as well. So it seems like a, a, a very complex setup. How did you learn how to manage and work in this environment at all? Um, I think I'm still... Uh I still don't really know very well. <laughs> I think um, I think it's a, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it all comes down to, uh, you know, sorry to repeat myself, but to put yourself in a room with people smarter than you. Because mm. I mean, I don't know, I didn't know about pairs, for example. So there are two ways that you can deal with that, or three maybe. You can either ignore it, or you can go away and you know do a degree in pharmacoeconomics or whatever, or you can just ask somebody the questions. So. Um, To plug a plug a company actually that um, that um, some of my friends started around the same time that we started CCG, uh, Textbird.io is a great way of just calling up an expert from any kind of background, half an hour call, ask them what you want, done. So we use that a lot. Cool. And and maybe shifting towards your your role as as CEO and some of the learnings you and your um, co-founders have ha have had in the last couple of years. What would you have done differently had you started again? Um, you know, I think there are probably a lot of small mistakes that have been made and a lot of things that maybe in hindsight I would have done differently. However, a lot of where we get to is is kind of serendipitous, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think it's it's not worth time really dwelling on. I mean, there's not been any like, you know, massive issues or anything like that. And I'm sure that going back now, I would have known a lot more and I, and I would have done a much better job, but also I may not have been in the same position that I'm in now. And I think it's it's quite important to um, jump in rather than focusing on, on, on the past too much. Mm. Sorry to avoid the question. No, no, no fair point. So if, if, if someone was about to start a company in that space now, what would you recommend to him or her? Uh, just do it. Um, I think so. I did a, um, I did a um, panel at the Judge Business School a couple of weeks ago, and it was all about identifying opportunity. Mm -hmm. And basically, it seemed like the entire audience had identified an opportunity of what to do, or you know, a, a company to start. But there were so many questions in the way, and there's like, oh, what about this? What about if I do this? Mm -hmm. oh, what about this? Maybe I should do this. And it, really, the best advice is just just to go and try it and do it. Mm. Um, so given that CCG is operating in what some might call the medtech sector, often it can seem as a slightly more slow moving sector compared to some of the other tech startup areas. How much do you think this was true for CCG and is a relevant factor to take into consideration? Um, it's a hugely relevant factor and it's definitely true for CCG. I think that the most important thing to bear in mind is that if you, when you're talking to investors, if you get a regular tech investor, they may expect after six months for you to have users in the, you know, tens of thousands. But really, it, I mean, it takes, firstly, it takes a lot longer to build the software for medtech, um, not even just because of uh, regulatory approval, but because it is more difficult, I guess. Um, and when you try and roll out this software, you'll find that medtech is a very kind of sticky world. Mm -hmm. So people are kind of wedded to the software that they use already, and they're kind of resistant and slow to move on to new softwares, which is probably objectively good 
when you think about um, you don't really want your doctor to jump onto the newest software and you know work through the alpha releases and the beta releases when it's breaking all the time. You kind of want the software to be working and be good before they jump onto it. Um, but you know the the counter side is it does make things a lot slower. Um, but that's kind of that's uh, one of the unique features of working in medtech um, that you just need to bear in mind. It's not necessarily a disadvantage. As a sort of follow on from that, I know a lot of people say that trying to implement innovations within the NHS can be particularly difficult. Obviously, the NHS is a huge organization with its own responsibilities. So how much have you focused your efforts? You mentioned sort of clinics in the US compared to here um how much have you focused the efforts globally rather than within the nhs and is that an important thing for you sure uh i think you're correct i think the nhs is large and slow moving um there are certain initiatives within the nhs that are making different bits of it move very fast lots of good digital initiatives uh the genomic medicine centers are going to be great for example um, so we are, you know, trying to work with these people and are working with these people. Um, and Genomics England has been very helpful in kind of helping us get to that stage. But the reality is that, I mean, we work with a community cancer center in Bakersfield in Southern California, who essentially just do, they have a lot of autonomy in, in how they operate. Mm. Whereas the NHS or a single NHS unit will not have a lot of autonomy. Um, which is beneficial for us working with them. And I think that's probably why people uh, work a lot in the US. Um, but also the because of the, I mean, if you do crack the NHS nut, as it were, I think it's supremely valuable because you suddenly get an infrastructure which is designed to cope with a population of 55 million or 60 million or whatever it is now, which is quite a unique um, kind of catchment, I guess. So there, so. I guess it's slower, but then if you do manage to crack it, um, the benefits are huge. Would you say that that's one of the biggest barriers that you've faced or has it been things such as the sharing of patient data or other barriers? So in our, I guess, more commercial endeavors, sharing of data has thus far not really been a massive issue. So. Obviously, there are some restrictions on where you move data, but you can kind of work through it, as I've alluded to. Um, and I think in general, and this is something that Joanne Hackett from Genomics England said, I think in general, patients are pretty keen on sharing their data if it's for the benefit of all other patients. Mm. They don't really, as long as there's informed consent, I think that at a patient level, it, people kind of don't mind. They kind of like to do it and they like to help. And I think in Addenbrookes, there is a ridiculously high um, level of informed consent. I think I once heard something like 90% of um, patients coming into Addenbrookes for cancer will allow some of their data or some of their tissue to be used for research, mm. which is an incredibly high level. But that kind of shows you that the, the willingness is there in a kind of grassroots way. We do find some restriction from uh, some... Uh, data silos, uh, you know, even ones that are publicly funded, um, even some Cancer Research UK data sets, et cetera, where um, the data is very siloed and it's not available for use by um, 
commercial entities, or even in some cases, the data is exclusively for use by one commercial entity and not for other commercial entities, which is a um, it's a challenge that we have to overcome um, when basically we're we're playing a numbers game and a data game. What are some of the milestones you and CCG have set yourself mm -hmm. for the future? Uh, for the future, um, so we have hit a couple very recently. Um, so the QMS and, and CE marking of Oncos, fantastic. The partnership with Genomics England leading to our first biomarker, also fantastic. Um, we're now going into, or about to go into uh, trying to raise some more money. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the results of that money are really going to go into clinical validation of our biomarkers, as well as rolling out of Oncos as a software. In terms of milestones, um, they're all kind of based around number of clinically annotated genomes available um, for research use and the, I guess, the survival benefit that we see from our, from our um, uh, complex biomarkers. Mm -hmm. So med medtech is quite a new area for a lot of investors, I suppose. Um, how easy or perhaps difficult is it to, to raise investment in that space? Um, I mean, raising money is always quite tricky, um, mm. but I think um, you get a couple of different schools of investors. Um, I mean, you will find it generally easier to raise from tech investors, but sometimes tech investors aren't aware of the difficulty of medtech platforms and they kind of see, they see a new medical technology and they're like, oh, that's fantastic, without realizing that it's 10 years away from, from approval. Mm -hmm. um, And obviously, you know, medtech is quite capital intensive, so you do kind of need to raise quite a lot of money. Um, we are seeing, and I think there was a great, well, there, I mean, there's a yearly report by um, Atomico, which is a big U European VC, into the state of um, VC and the state of investing in Europe. And their most recent one came out like a week ago or something at Slush. Um, and I think that overall, the the space is becoming better and it's becoming there is more growth stage money in europe mm -hmm. um more of it's been spent on on um, uk companies more of it's been spent on medtech companies so there is definitely a, a kind of good future ahead and i think that there is this there's a general belief that if you know the last century was the century of i don't want to say transistors this century will be the century of dna And of, of biological kind of engineering, which is um, definitely helping helping everybody's cause in medtech, I think. Mm -hmm. Given that there's this sort of medtech boom at the moment, what have you done to differentiate yourselves and make yourselves attractive to investors compared to others in the space? Um, sure. So I think it's actually quite tricky because if you think about a, a biomarker is just kind of a way of deciding whether, or a thing that you can measure that tells you whether somebody's going to respond to a drug. And arguably, there are w lots of different approaches to doing this. And even things like path AI that, you know, do use artificial intelligence to help um, diagnose pathology images are in a way kind of doing kind of biomarkers. So there is, when you're at that kind of higher up level and not going into the kind of granular details, there is it does appear that there's a lot of people in the space. When you actually drill into it, there are very, very few companies that are 
at the same time developing cutting edge machine learning analysis and not just applying things off the shelf. So not only are we publishing a lot of, you know, proper new math and new machine learning methods, but at the same time, we've developed a medically regulated clinical annotation tool or genomic annotation tool, which is out there being used by people today. Mm -hmm. And there are very few companies that kind of sit at that interface where they are providing something of value today to customers and collecting data. And at the same time, developing novel technologies and novel ways of analyzing that data, which are completely end-to-end different from what has been done today. And what is really cool for us is that we've been rabbiting on about this for like three years. And now we have the the proof, you know, we have the biomarker, the first biomarker, which is much, much better than anything else anybody else can do. So I think that the best way of differentiating yourself is to have the best thing. But definitely when people look at the industry from a top-down approach, they do, um, it, it, it does become a bit confusing and, and it does look very, very crowded. So maybe to wrap up everything, a, a final question. So you're now based in Cambridge, but you've also been in California, as you mentioned. What prompted you to choose Cambridge as a location? And what would you say is perhaps the most exciting location for a medtech company such as CCG? Uh, so the reason that we chose Cambridge as a location was that we knew that we had to do a lot of heavy machine learning and data science lifting. And when, although, you know, the, the Valley sometimes thinks that it's the center of all computer science knowledge in the world, actually, when you look at the number of, you know, for example, machine learning PhDs, you'll actually find that Cambridge and London far outstrip what is available in, in San Francisco. So we came back here because we knew that the talent was here, essentially. Um, and unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, fortunately for the ecosystem, unfortunately for our hiring manager, a lot of other companies realize this as well. And you know now we have Microsoft Research and Amazon Research and Apple Research and Prowler and all these other companies hiring hundreds of engineers, um, which is making hiring a bit more challenging but mm -hmm. you know it's still fun mm. um and i think that obviously this is going to sound biased but i think that cambridge is the most exciting medtech um ecosystem and but that is not for the reason that most people will say it's the most exciting um uh cluster i guess Be i think it's the most exciting cluster because we are the third most productive life science cluster in terms of publications in the world after the Bay Area and uh, Boston. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a Genentech and we don't have a Celgene or a BMS or a Pfizer or anything like that. We've got AstraZeneca, but that's kind of wasn't really originally here. Um, I mean, we have CAT slash Medimmune, which became, you know, the biologics arm of AstraZeneca, but that's really it. Um, and I think that that is probably the limitation of, of the Cambridge cluster is that, companies we don't have any of these big unicorns that you can kind of look at and work towards being that that company mm -hmm. apart from a couple um but also that to me that means that there is so much potential in this cluster that is just incredible because mm -hmm. if you think in in california in, in the bay area everything that could be a company they're making it into a company whereas here everything that could be a company people 
don't make them into companies, which just means that there is so much more growth opportunity here. And we have so much more potential to to disrupt the future, I guess, um, because we've not just been you know, commercializing everything that's come into our door. But obviously, there's a lot of challenges that need to be overcome before we get there. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you very much, John, for coming on the show with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation with John. Uh, one of the things I took away was the spirit of, of just giving it a go. Uh, I think particularly in a, in a very academic place, that can sometimes be a problem because people completely overthink their their entrepreneurial venture. So I think it, it was a healthy, healthy and refreshing reminder that sometimes you just have to embrace the uncertainty, give it a go and, and learn along the way. Definitely. And something that I also thought was very interesting from our discussion was the difference between the clinics in the US as well as um, implementing med tech in the UK, for um, for instance, in the, within the NHS. Mm. Um, I think that was very important for med tech startups to understand as well as investors in tech in general to appreciate. Thanks very much to John again for joining us on Key Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and we would also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.